0: I'm going to make a reference to uh, a previous Devil's 2 issue. It's 10 feet away. One second. Walking away from my microphone. Opening
1: my door. My cat meowing. All right, I'm
0: coming back. I've got the comic in my hand. And I'm sitting down. And I'm putting my headphones on. And I'm back. Live from the Talking Joe Studios.
2: The last issues from him, an arc called Dawn of the Red Shadows. Brandon Jell was era's ending, a lay with the Red Shadows. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, being carried away by the rise of the Red Shadows. Welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated GeoJo comics podcast presented by someone called Mark, who is on the south coast of England and talks to someone called Tim. If you are new to the show, you can find all of the details over at the website, which is called talkingjoe.co. Dot uk. We are continuing today with our look at the disavowed era of G.I. Joe with issue 43, The Dawn of the Red Shadows, part 2, or chapters 3 and 4 possibly, depending on how you look at it, uh, from Devil's Due in May 2005. This is the final issue from Brandon Jerwa's run on the main title. Now, without further ado, let me introduce my co-host joining me on this adventure. It is a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark. And hello, listeners. Greetings to all of you out there uh, doing well on the Hong Kong uh, chart again, I see. So greetings to all of our Hong Kong listeners. So, Tim, we're talking about issue 43. This issue is from uh, Brandon Joa. Brandon Brandon Jawa. On story pencils Tim Seely and Emaliano Santa Lucia, the same team who did half and a half of the uh, the full issue uh, last time. Uh, Inks Corey Hampshire, coloring Brett R. Smith, lettering Steve Seely. Editor Mark Powers, Associate Editor Mike O'Sullivan, Graphic Design Mike Norton, Production Assistants Sean Dove, Military Consultation Andrew Swenson. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Now, the cover is credited to Tim Seeley, Sean Parsons and Brett Smith.
0: This cover has been teased in two different ways. So this is issue 43 we're talking about. But back in issue 40, the inside back cover had a 12-square grid of heads. We talked about it on that episode. It was black and white. It was a very warm uh, warm gray tones, black and white. And in uh, a slightly distressed block re- uh, font in red, it says, The war will end. One will die. The red shadows will rise. G.I. Joe, May 2005 and all 12 of these heads, this is the same background as we are seeing on the cover of 43. So top left we see Wraith, and top right we see Roadblock, right? As we saw in the in the black and white um, house ad back in issue 40. And then, I don't have it in front of me, but it's either issue 41 or 42, uh, the, the the foreground of this new cover with these three characters. Uh, in the red shadows. That was, that was a house ad also promoting the storyline. so what we're seeing here are, uh, the three main red shadows in their red shadows costumes, uh, looking serious at us and with them in the way of much of the background and the logo type and the devil's do logo and, and some copy like 48 page conclusion, uh, we end up only being uh, being able to make out on this cover in the background. Lady J's head, sort of Wraith because his eye is peeking through, sort of Destro because his eye and a little bit of his collar are peeking through, and Roadblock because he's the only black G.I. Joe or Cobra character with a big handlebar mustache. Uh, so, you know, when I looked at this cover in reading it for this episode, the character who in the background who's top center could sort of either be snake eyes or firefly, you know, because all you see is a little bit of the top of the head, a little bit of the bottom of the jaw, and then a little bit of shoulders. And it's just sort of dark gray. And it's definitely snake eyes, right? Because you can see a little bit of sword, I think. Um, Anyway, so what I'm saying is I appreciate that since we don't get to see most of this background here, we did get to see it three months ago in the back of issue 40. And uh, it's a it's a good drawing. It's a little over colored in that in that modern way. There are lots of uh, highlights on the characters in the background, and uh, lots of highlights on the characters in the foreground. I think the the two red coats are are leather, but um, I, ju- I want to throw this back to you, Mark, because a- as a final issue, and as a cover for this big deal story that's taking up two double-sized issues does this cover grab you does it ask a question does it promise you something are you worried are you satisfied in its sort of like cool pose character standing there looking cool how do you how do you take this cover
2: <laughs> i don't know it's fine i mean they're the big characters and i guess if if they're the major characters they deserve a cover but they're standing there and they're cool and they're, you know they're well drawn. But it's not especially exciting, is it?
0: It it doesn't have tension. You know, sort of the closest comparison is G.I. Joe 155, A Real American Hero 155. And that cover, uh, it's not all that well drawn, but it has a tone. It has mood, right? It is somber. And this cover, because of all of the cropping, this sort of ends up being inadvertent, Because of all the cropping, sort of the only background character who very clearly peeks through is Lady J. And so the cover accidentally becomes about four characters who are of equal importance. The Three Red Shadows and Lady J, who, when you open this this book, just died one page ago uh, at the end of the previous issue. And that's interesting as a a design choice, right, because Roadblock gets knocked out Snake Eyes gets knocked out. Wraith gets mostly knocked out. Uh, it's it's Major Blood behind uh, Arter. No, I'm sorry, it's Cobra Commander. Uh, I'm double-checking from the, the previous um, uh, visual of this cover. This cover ends up sort of saying something a little different, I think, than it intended, which is, like, Lady J and the three red shadows uh, in a way that, you know, with Destro peeking through, like, he's sort of not as active. The other thing when I saw this cover... Um, that intrigued me, but I re- I realized I was misinterpreting it. Wraith on the top left and Snake Eyes on the top center, they read as black and white because Wraith is just this all white metal light gray character and Snake Eyes is this all dark, dark gray character and their backgrounds don't have any obvious color. And then next to them, there's Roadblock and I can see the brown in his skin. And I thought, oh, are some of these squares black and white and some of these are color? to differentiate characters who are dead versus living. And I thought, okay, so uh, Roblox in color, he's, he must be dead. Lady, because Lady J just died. So Roblox must die in this issue. Well, well, Destro's got a red collar and a green eye. Um, So I I went down this very small rabbit hole, this mental rabbit hole where I thought, (laughs) oh no, no, no. I think what's actually happening is that if you took the three foreground characters off, I think the backgrounds in the top row has very little color in it. And then the backgrounds in the second tier have a little more red, and the backgrounds in the third tier have a little more red, and then the backgrounds in the bottom, it's a gradient, right? So when you look all the way in the bottom left corner um, past Flint's face and the barcode, right? That's that's a, a gray pink. And I thought, okay, what's happening is the background is sort of saturating as the cover goes down. It's not that some of these are black and white, and some of these are color, it's that some of these have different backgrounds, and Wraith and Snake Eyes just read as black and white illustrations, black and white and and gray illustrations. But I think you make a good point here, which is that they're the villains, and they really needed a cover. They they sort of demanded a cover. Yeah. And we've run out of covers, so they're getting the final one. (laughs) But, you know, final issues have historically... Offered readers a jumping off point. You you might think logically that if you're reading a book, you know, it's on issue 106 or, you know, 13 or 702, and uh, sales are going down and they're going to cancel the book, you'd think that readers who are, who've been following the book for the last six months or year are really going to stick it out to the end. The opposite happens. A, stores that are ordering this book might cut their numbers because it probably wasn't selling well from anyway. And they don't want to risk wasting even a few bucks on sort of a a wounded limping animal to use a a figure of speech. And if you're a reader, and you haven't been invested in the book, you might think, you know, I'm just not going to buy the final issue or two. And so there's this argument that the final issue needs a really compelling cover to sort of make sure all the stores order it and all the readers and subscribers and walk-ins ask for it and and buy it and this cover isn't quite that but i do think this cover succeeds in that basic logical statement you just made which is they're the big bads so they should be on the cover since since they haven't been
2: Mm -hmm. okay so that's the covers uh what happens on the insides let me tell you dear listener with a plot breakdown Stella Eden has just killed Lady J, and as she is in the middle of taking Flint prisoner, Scarlet arrives and captures her instead. Scarlet then goes on to investigate leads to Eclipsey trading in Greece. Her intel uncovers links to a defense company named Umbra Systems and the schematics for a device called the Neural Enhancer, the secret to the Red Shadow's physical strength. Later, while Duke and Ray interrogate Della, General Mars Haring helps Della escape and is captured himself and revealed to be a traitor. Later at the Pentagon, he sacrifices himself in a detonation. The Red Shadows are gathered together at the Umbra Systems headquarters when the G.I. Joe team drop in. Flint captures Della and refuses to kill her, and Arthur is also captured. But World of Devan The Red Shadow Leader escapes, General Joe Colton is revealed to still be alive, and in a Middle Eastern hospital, a man who may be Cobra Commander is recovering in a hospital and hears on the TV the news that the G.I. Joe team has been deactivated. The end, but the saga of G.I. Joe continues in G.I. Joe America's Elite issue 0.
0: So uh, a helpful, for people who are just listening and not reading along, it might be helpful to point out, because I'll forget later on, um, in your plot breakdown, when you just mentioned that it's revealed that Joe Colton is still alive, we don't see him. He It's just nope. mentioned in dialogue. Yeah, whereas, a little whereas, bit. <laughs> whereas we do see, we do see, who's probably Cobra commander, a man with bandages on his on his head in a hospital bed.
2: Yeah funny funny enough you know the the mention of Joe Colton was uh kind of throw a little bit throwaway in a dialogue uh, from I think from Duke and it kind of slightly put me in mind of um of GI Joe the movie where you hear that Duke is uh, alive or uh, and he's come out of his coma which is you know all done in in uh, you know overdub because of course in uh, they originally You know, made the 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 film itself to to have Duke Duke die. So, yeah, funny funny enough that that being used in another way. But um, well to uh, to take
0: that to take that a further step, are you asking? Did this comic originally intend Joe Colton to die in the previous issue and be dead, and did someone change their mind, or did someone higher up say, no no no, let's insert some dialogue that Joe Colton's okay?
2: It did cross my mind. Did did somebody, you know, did the writer or did editorial sort of say, "Mm, well, you know, Joe Colton, he's a good character. Maybe we shouldn't have him dead. Let's maybe let's just insert a little bit of dialogue here to just say that he is alive after all. And then then he's there if we want him. Um, It did cross my mind.
0: Uh, We should make a note that if we get uh, Mr. Brandon Gerwa back or Mr. Josh Blaylock back, we should ask them.
2: Hmm funny enough when we're talking about Joe Colton and Cobra Commander also being revealed to be alive in uh, in Josh Egerbean's summary a friend of the show Josh Egerbean, on uh, on YoJo his his write up of this issue he in his summary he says General Joe Colton is revealed to still be alive and recovering in hospital so i th- i think uh, that uh, that Josh when he read that uh well, in fact, he in his, his more detailed one as well, the news report is being watched by General Joel Colton in the hospital bed, still very much alive. Um, he has read that character on that final page to be Joe Colton, you know, coming to. But, um, oh,
0: interesting. He, yeah, interesting.
2: He, I, I think he missed a couple of important cues there. that the first of all, he's in the Middle East, um, whereas J- Joe Colton, I think, was in on American soil when he got injured and... The dialogue is more Cobra Commander. Turn it up, the television. I want to hear it. And also, just those eyes, sort of in the in the bandages. You know, it's sort of suggesting sort of the eyes behind the the cowl. And and also, the story is about the reveal that Cobra Commander may be alive. It says the militia's enigmatic leader, Cobra Commander, may still be at large. So so yeah, I'm I'm hundred percent convinced that that is supposed to be Cobra Commander.
0: That dialogue you just did is the news reporter on the TV.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: One last comparison to this bit of uh, audio insert in GI Joe the movie: the the camera pan over the Joes after the big explosion, where Doc over the radio says, uh, "Good news, Duke is out of his coma." Right, and then the Joes cheer, and then <laughs> someone says something that feels like it could have come next, like, "Like good job, everyone. We did okay." Sort of as an editor, as a director, if you look at that sequence, you realize there was very little space for them to insert some dialogue that would make everything okay for Duke. It is seamless, right? It's not like they got some other actor to play Doc. It's not like, you know, the dialogue's coming over while, you know, like Falcon and Scarlet are like refilling the gas tank on the All Striker or something like it actually works. And similarly, this panel at the end of this issue where Duke says, you'd only be half done, Vaughn. You let Joe Colton. You left Joe Colton as close to death as could be, but that old war host flat out refused to die. There is enough physical space in this panel for one or two additional or longer word balloons if this fact about Colton was a change, was an addition. It's not like, Sometimes you see in a comic book, you see this in like Marvel comics, um, sometimes in the 70s and 80s where, uh, and 90s, where um, the, the letterer missed a word balloon. And so there's an additional word balloon on a panel that's definitely in someone else's lettering handwriting. And, you know, the editor must have caught it or the the writer caught it. Or maybe in a few cases, the writer said, oh, I'm sorry, I know this has been lettered. I, I thought of another line of dialogue that really needs to be in this panel. I know it's going to crowd the art a little bit. Can we get someone to do this patch? And, you know, the actual letterer isn't available or based on where the artwork is, sort of the timing won't work. But if this is a sort of later in the process change, as with G.I. Joe, the movie, it might stick out. Sort of logically and story-wise, it does not stick out in terms of like visuals or audio. It does look and and, and read as as seamless. Uh, but that's that's us talking about the end. Should we talk about either the beginning <laughs> or top down, or do you want to you want to start with something positive?
2: Oh dear, Tim. Um, i i I really str- struggled with this this issue. It just it kind of just didn't land for me. It isn't that I hated it it just didn't really connect with me. And normally I feel like, you know, I'm writing loads of notes of, of all the things I want to talk about. And there wasn't loads of things that kind of, you know, stuck out for me as, as things like, okay, we have to dig into this particular point. So I'm I'm kind of, my my tanks, my tank's a little bit empty on, on this one. I knew from memory that I didn't particularly, uh, the, yeah, I sort of kind of lost interest in the last couple of issues of this run when they first came out it, it didn't connect with me at the time and, and it hasn't really on the on the reread so i think i'll i'll, I'll pass to you to, to you know for your top down sure <laughs> i'll be intrigued to see what you think
0: sure uh well um after after my um not careful enough read of our previous issue which resulted in a embarrassment where i really missed the point of the opening flashback that Colton, Joe Colton, is narrating it and he's in that scene. And the very thing that I said the scene and the issue needed to connect these new villains with the established characters was in fact there. That was embarrassing. I do I do admit I, I read some of that issue uh too fast. I did read this issue more carefully. And and I realized that if the I was very hard on the previous issue whether or not I misread an opening scene and you know, maybe my four should go to a five uh, for the previous issue. My yojoage score because m- maybe the the opening flashback does connect it better, even if it's as the three of us were saying, doesn't quite work, and it's it's sort of rushed and some of it's flat. But I realized with this issue, because the previous issue had to rush in setting up the villains and the stakes, that the previous issue sort of fell on its sword for this issue and it allowed me to enjoy this issue more because I feel like we had to some degree and maybe mostly gotten past the like rushed establishment of these villains this may not fully bear out but I feel like you know it's sort of like you read an issue that you don't like and then you read another issue and if that next issue is the same maybe you like it more or dislike it less and this issue, I could just sort of concentrate on uh, the action and, okay, Gerwa, it's your final issue, you know, wrap, wrap up, wrap up stuff. So my, my positives are that a lot happens in a good way, double-sized issue or not. It feels overloaded, but not like the previous issue. It feels hmm. a little crowded. You know, the previous issue felt like four issues or a year of subplot in a double-sized issue. And this felt like, you know, three or four issues in a double-sized issue. I also appreciate that it's a double-sized issue. And and I love double-sized <laughs> comics. I want more comics. Anniversary, final, premiere. I want more comics to be double-sized. And the economics of it now, you know, or that that's hard because that makes for, you know, a $6 comic.
2: More is more.
0: <laughs> uh marvel and dc are sure enjoying the little spikes in sales and money they make from all these 9.99 comics you know like dc's been doing all these specials these like anniversary specials or these character spotlights uh like every three days out of a week marvel will do like a, a 96 page uh, 9.99 issue of amazing spider-man because like we will eat that up and marvel will keep doing it if we keep Um, Anyway, so, um, but, but, I will start on a, I'll jump, I'll shift to a negative, uh, because unfortunately, my bad dialogue award goes to this issue and page one, (laughs) where Flint says, so, uh, uh, Della gives us some sort of half exposition, half character stuff to catch us up from the previous issue. And Flint says, you, you, you killed her. And you know, show, don't tell. She's right in front of him. He saw it happen. It happened a moment ago. Maybe he's in shock, but he's a soldier and he's professional. I know they're married, but I feel like he can have a reaction, which is angry or disbelieving, but I don't think he should be saying the thing that just happened. I feel like that dialogue is too much supposed to remind me of what happened in the previous issue. So on page one, uh, I was taken out of the narrative, because you know Flint's like, "You stabbed her with that piece of shrapnel from that you grabbed from the ground in front of me." You know, it's like, "I know, we know, you know, you know." <laughs> um, you know what? Sorry, let me shift back. Uh, because there was um, I do have a note. Uh, one of my one of the things that I liked about this issue, um, is that I think there's some good sort of logical progression in the plotting, where Jerwa makes a couple good decisions and having sort of a lead to B um, or cause and effect. So, and this is plotting. So for example, on page eight, the Joes are back in their uh, headquarters and they've had this intelligence failure. They've been infiltrated in several different ways and they're figuring out what to do, just the three or four or five of them. And Scarlet says, The firebomb used to kill the jugglers was paid for through one of their offshore accounts. First-hand information is all we can rely on now. And that does two things. One, that motivates this undercover mission she takes on the next page where she puts on a business suit and goes to Greece. And two, it shows that they understand that they can't rely on sort of anything in a computer or anything secondhand. You know, it's like if, if Duke says, Oh, I heard something from someone else that I know from some other office, right? Well, that person might be compromised, or that information might be compromised. So that little bit of dialogue um, did some good sort of story uh, lifting for me. And then Jurwat does it again on page 15 when Duke and General Ray go to visit Herring in jail. And there's a security breach while they're there, like a a little red alert thing goes off and they pop back out of the, I'm sorry. They're not visiting, uh, excuse me. They're not visiting Herring. They're visiting uh, Della Eden. And on page 15, Ray and Duke pop back out of the jail cell. And there are those two guards with machine guns. And Ray says, what's your assigned protocol for this alert soldier? He needs to know what they're supposed to do when this kind of red alert happens. And I thought, well, this is either some uh, sort of convenient motivational dialogue so that the guard can say, well, there's that ladder over there that no one knows about. But I feel like it is a good sort of problem-solving exercise for Jerwa to move characters around in the jail cell, just outside the jail cell, down the hallway where this, I guess, elevator door is, where this secret ladder is, where the secret ladder goes up to the office, where Ray and Duke are going to see red shadows having shot a bunch of people in an office they just walked through uh, or, or Herring just walked through. So I, I like that, that bit of dialogue. Um, what's your assigned protocol for this alert soldier? So we're supposed to say with a prisoner no exceptions. And then, and then he says, I need a rundown of our surroundings, including exit routes, equipment, access, and anything else. I think you should know. Right. And then it's the other one says, Oh, there's a ladder that that doesn't show up on schematics.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and, as you were just sort of describing some of that, I, I was having a bit of a thought process in terms of, in terms of kind of the the makeup of this story and how it works, and what you were saying about maybe it's less crowded than the last issue or other issues. And it occurred to me that this story is a lot more linear in terms of the events unfolding compared to mm. most of the other stories that we've read in the well, almost entire you know. All of all of the IDW era, but certainly uh, and certainly Brandon was era. It does move scene to scene with each scene sort of progressing the next without too much sort of ping ponging with uh, sort of parallel plots going going on. That we've got Flint uh, versus Della. She's captured. Then we're back with the Joes at their base. They talk about the next mission they'll go on. Scarlet goes on that mission. Uh, that pretty much concludes then we're back at the the prison to, to check in with duke and Della and uh, ray there's the the breakout once that's done they want to deal with the consequences of of that and uh, they're dealing you know they've got now all of the intel from scarlet what next it's the the tower in new york where the the, the, the joes are found out about and that's where all the red shadows are um so the red shadows are now there then the the joe's go to that tower they have the big confrontation and uh and there's a winner and a loser essentially it's it's a lot more you know sort of story beat story story beat all moving in the one singular direction
0: and the previous issue really suffered from that two pages of news reports about five or six or eight terrorist attacks Yeah, Which was, you know, in a movie, I feel like that kind of telling, not showing montage could be effective because you'd also have music and sound, you know, and the camera would like cut in close to like the news reporter's face and you'd see the sort of grid pattern on the TV, you know, for emphasis. And in the previous issue, that two pages was drawn sort of presentationally. Um, It didn't have any uh, oomph. And this issue doesn't have two pages of news reporters telling us that bad things have happened about places that we haven't been before. Yeah, There is, uh, so there's two examples that I just gave where I feel like jurwa has got some good moving the story along dialogue. There's one that I ran into, which I wasn't sure if it was good or bad. So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, on the previous page from where Ray's asking the guards about their protocol, Ray and Duke are talking to Della Eden. So this is page 14. And Ray says, "Uh, what's so brilliant about Vaughn's plan? You've targeted Cobra and J.I. Joe alike. Why? Della says, when you used a nuclear weapon on Cobra Island, you gave us no choice but to act. And I thought, finally, someone's acknowledging what a big deal (laughs) this was. Besides me, 20 years later in a podcast. And then she continues, did you consider the dangerous to the environment or even the human race? Of course not. You are as much a threat as Cobra. (laughs)
2: the next the next panel is the best panel in the book wrong answer lady thwack and and duke just kicks
0: her (laughs) Uh, kicks her out of her chair she's handcuffed this comic came out in 2005 and you know like news about enhanced what's the word
2: interrogation protocols yes
0: enhanced interrogation that that was a big news event and the tv series 24 on fox you know, like Jack Bauer would like yell at and then like punch and like lightly, <laughs> lightly torture some of his captives. You know, like where's the bomb? And and you know that stuff sort of creeps into the public public consciousness, and then maybe sort of the level is raised, and it's like, well, it's okay if Duke does it because Jack Bauer did it.
1: <laughs> so this, uh, I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I <laughs> didn't
0: like that panel, although. You know, Della Eden is like the fourth worst person in the world right now. So maybe it's justified,
2: but but he's not asking you know he's not asking her difficult questions about where the bomb is or anything. He just he was just annoyed by her answer right. Well you're I, getting I th- a booting
0: yeah, i think I think I think that that is so that Duke can have some release because Lady Jay's just been killed and other Joe's were killed two issues ago. and There are, you know, all these, there's two pages of terrorist attacks in the previous issue that we're being told about. But going back to Della Eden's dialogue, right? She says, we had to act because you dropped a nuke. Did you even consider the dangers? You are as much a threat as Cobra. And I I wanted to ask you, do the bits of dialogue in this final issue between Wilder, Arthur, and Della... Are they enough of an explanation for how and why the Red Shadows exist and, and what they want to do? Because I feel like we finally get some explanation in this issue. Like, they've got a building in New York, it turns out, with a greenhouse, <laughs> which I want to come back to. And Wilder Vaughn has one or two speeches in this issue, or, or not speeches, bits of dialogue to a Joe or to Arthur, where he says... You know we're we're wiping the system clean and we're starting over, uh, and it's 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 less about violence and more about sort of like fairness or parity. And I thought P A R I T Y, not P A R O D Y. And and I thought, am I just relieved that we're finally getting this? Did I did we get some of it before and I didn't notice it because it was vague? How does this does this work for you? The the red shadows sort of explanation
2: there has been drips and drabs, sort of coming coming through, but I don't know if it's entirely satisfying. Like, like she's saying, you use a nuclear weapon on Cobra Island, and that meant that we had to act. But I think even before then, they'd been killing a few of the Joes off. So, so the the nuclear bomb on Cobra Island that was what two issues ago, like forty one, I think. So, I think I think most of the the other killings of Co, Cobras and Joes had already happened to that point. So. It's, it's not really a valid justification. And then, <laughs> and then I think I didn't, I didn't completely get all of the, all of the plot about what the Red Shadows were up to, but there was a sort of funny bit of creepy dialogue uh, from Wilder Vaughan. He was, he said, my appreciation uh, is sincere talking to here, uh, And this is precisely the reason why I believe you should take your rightful place as the mother of our new world month oh I would be honored the honor would be mine you and I will lead the battle but our progeny will lead to the new order so maybe maybe the plot is just about you know an excuse to get some sexy time with Della.
0: i i I had I, I was of two minds of that dialogue I thought okay well the good news is that this is very different from what cobra wants <laughs> and uh and you know the, the uh, if you're gonna have this other you know, like, Cobra, speaking of G.I. Joe the movie, Cobra Law is interesting in G.I. Joe the movie because it wants something different than a Cobra, right? Destro's Grenadiers in Larry Hama's G.I. Joe comics, Destro as a faction is interesting because he wants something different than Cobra Commander. As long as the Red Shadows are doing sort of just what Cobra's doing, it's sort of not enough. You sort of then wonder why was why wasn't Cobra sort of powerful enough to stop them? So... I appreciate the the different take, the different stakes. So this thing about Umbra. On page nineteen, we see the Umbra logo, and Scarlet explains something, and I felt like I was sort of being artificially caught up on things. So Scarlett, she says, if it's accurate, Vaughn is and his followers have been planning. For decades. The Red Shadows are unlike anything we faced before. They want to do no less than completely reorder human society. I thought, okay. And then she says, with her sort of hand in that, like, ta da, um, pointing back to the computer screen behind her. To do this, they plan to replace all organized government and religion with a single global technocracy. And I thought, what? Okay, that's very specific considering how vague the Red Shadows have been up until now. And at the same time, that's very vague because how would you replace all governments and religion? Like, no, that's impossible. It's like, are they going to do this with nanites or something? Or like a gas? Are they going to hypnotize people? And she continues. Ever heard of Umbra Secure System Portals? And I thought, no. And she continues. (laughs) uh, And and I'm thinking like, oh, did I miss something in the previous issue? Or the previous issues? Is this a real world thing? And now Jurwa through Scarlet is going to tell me about it. And and she continues, they're the number one operating system for military weapons arrays used by dozens of countries. And I thought, okay, cool. I don't know if I buy that, but okay, okay. And then she finishes, they're based in New York City and connected to Eclipse, which is that, that company uh, that she had just gone to Greece for, right? Yeah. Okay. So this panel feels like the apex of, or maybe I should say the nadir of a long planned storyline getting compressed into just a few issues where sort of the, the how and why of it is crunched down into six word balloons. And I feel like either, uh, one of the red shadows should be like walking down a hallway with a captive president or a lesser red shadow and explaining how this is going to work. Or a red shadow should be, like, on TV threatening the Eiffel Tower or something, or a bunch of, uh, like, all the all the people making a pilgrimage to Mecca, if they're going to replace all religion, and, like, pushing a button and, like, actually doing it. It's like, okay, now all the Muslims making the pilgrimage to Mecca uh, don't believe in that. They are They will follow the red shadows now. So... You know, again, if 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 the writer, Brandon Jirwa, has only 48 pages and 48 pages to tell a story that he'd planned for, you know, 100 pages, 150 pages, 200 pages, 300 pages, you're going to get panels like this. And mm. I would rather it sort of get explained than completely left out. But he's got a real juggling act here to sort of make it satisfying enough, but not too crowded, but not too rushed, but not too vague. Mm. And, and in this juggling, that's what I was saying before. I think this issue juggles better than the previous. But this, this thing about Umbra, right? So, I mean, it's, this is still a, you know, sort of a fantasy sci-fi comic, right? They're the number one operating system for military arrays, uh, weapons arrays, used by dozens of countries. Okay, in the G.I. Joe world, that must be true.
2: Yeah, it's sort of uh, introduced somewhat as a MacGuffin sort of saying, right, okay, there's this company, Umbra Systems. They've got, you know, very powerful because their systems control lots of weaponry or whatever all over the world. And bingo bango, that's why they're the big bad and can destroy the world. And that's why they're such a threat and, and need to be dealt with. But it's kind of I, I, not quite a big reveal because it doesn't seem seem necessarily big enough, but it's it sort of put in as the context. This this is the thing. This is part of the, our world. Let's keep on moving on.
0: This draws two comparisons, what are some cases in G.I. Joe where the bad guys are related to a company or a technology and they can su- they can surprise us? Well, in the cartoon, Cobra has extensive enterprises. And in the Devil's Do comic, Cobra has extensive enterprises right on its side. Hmm. And also Cobra has Mars. And those aren't explored as much as they might be in in the episodes in the earlier Devil's Do issues in the entire Marvel uh, run. But I have a really warm feeling because Extensive Enterprises is so well established in just a few episodes of the GI Joe cartoon. Tom X and Zay are so fun and funny. The Joes, you know, sneak in at night in uh, the 1985 episode, Red Rockets Glare, even though there's some like bonker stuff with like like gymnastics poles between the buildings as a weird security system. Anyway, and you know, Mars is established in like one sentence of a file card in 1983, four. And, but then, you know, gets used here and there. So I, I want to be sort of shocked by and excited about and interested in Umbra and uh, Eclipse, but there's there's not a lot of room for it. Speaking of page uh, 19, I was, a little, I was a little thrown off. So the first panel of page 19, there's a yellow sky and there are a bunch of vehicles pulling up to this building that's got fencing around it. And the next panel tells me where we are. We're at the G.I. Joe Operations Center. But then I thought, wait a minute, back on page seven, there's a very different looking building with a morning sky, sort of a pink morning sky. Mm. Or maybe, sorry, maybe that's a sunset sky that says G.I. Joe Operations Center. Now, a G.I. Joe Operations Center could be very big and there could be different parts of the complex, different buildings or the, the the was it the second ah, the second or third arc for in the devil's do run established that gi joe had lots of different bases like in chicago and in nevada or something but i got confused here because i thought wait is this this is this the same gi joe operations center i, I want to jump in and looks-
2: put you out of your misery tim <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i think what we're seeing on that top panel is a coloring error i think um that is a continuation of the previous scene. So Wilder Vaughan has got onto a helicopter and is escaping from the the prison, the The prison which is just outside Sperryville, Virginia, oh, 80 miles wow. west of Washington, D.C. And and they're, wow. they're, this, this is the backup coming to stop the escape driving in. And they're saying that we're too late. They've got away. And that should be colored the same sky as the panel previously
0: wow very good my misery is out uh put out <laughs> wow that's fascinating you know normally i'd be all like grumpy like shaking my fist like colorist editor catch this stuff but i just think it's so fascinating that one small thing can throw off a scene for me so much and i imagine a lot of people who read this uh didn't didn't quite pick up on sort of anything wrong with it and uh i'm happy for you uh that's nice. Uh, fascinating. Okay.
2: I must admit that I I didn't I didn't pick up on it on my first read. I sort of I think I must have glossed over it and and just thought yeah it's you know it's the introductory sort of shot to the next panel. It was only only when you start talking about it it was like oh right yeah that's what's happened.
0: This is perhaps a gentle nudge for everyone who's writing comics that you you can have a scene go one panel onto the next page. But the end of a page and the next page, or a page turn, is a natural break. Yeah, You know, it's like before digital projection when you went to the movies, you can only fit about 18 minutes of film on a reel. So like up in the projection booth, the, the film gets shipped, uh, you know, your, your hour and a half, your two hour film, your two and a half hour film gets shipped. Not all in one giant piece because that would be like the circumference it'd be like an extra 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 large pizza right you you snip the film into like 18 minute reels and you ship each reel you ship them all together right and then the projectionist has to like deal with it this is before digital projection which is just a hard drive but film directors and editors knew that a real change could be a natural place for a scene change because a real change is a like slightly distracting loud like jump in the theater where like you know you might hear like a Poof! from from like the set sa- the speakers as the like optical track gets anyway I'm getting I'm getting in the weeds but um, if you put a real change in the middle of a scene it might be a little distracting because there's like a little pop right when someone's talking to someone else but someone finishes talking and they sign they look over and you have a beat and then then you have the real real change. So maybe your your all other things being equal, your best natural scene break is the end of one page and the beginning of another.
2: Yes, very good. And that and that is you no know, that is how it is done throughout. As, as you were saying, that it is how it is done throughout most of the the issue. It will be the new scene begins first page, uh, so first panel of any page. Uh, albeit that there was there is another example about uh, if you flick. Four page turns back or so from where we were, where uh, it's the last se- sequence from that was it? Eclipse, um, eclipse, it's somethingy in Greece uh, where Scarlet has done a high kick and and then is escaping in a van. Uh, the the escape in the van is the top two panels of yeah one page, and then the next uh the next panel, the third panel of that page is the the scene change, and it's it's a Sort of similar, similar to the to what we just uh, just saw.
0: Yeah, with, without the coloring mistake. Yeah, uh, I just
2: want to point out this
0: uh, this jumping kick uh, from Scarlet to, to me feels very much like a uh, a Kevin Eastman Peter Laird Ninja Turtles kick. I feel like I feel like I've seen this kick in, in a good way. I feel like I've seen this <laughs> kick in a black and white Ninja Turtles comic from 1985, 1988. Uh, in terms of formatting, since we're talking about formatting. The scene where Flint, so we're now in the second half of the book, and it's drawn by Tim Seeley. The scene where Flint has, he's left the briefing, and he's gone on his own. He's gone on ahead to the, the Umbra corporate headquarters in New York City. And it's nighttime, and it's raining, and he's got his binoculars. What is he holding? A weapon. Oh yeah, a weapon. Right, right, in the final panel. Oh, sure. yeah. Shotgun. Sure. Um, uh, thank you. Yes, shotgun. So um there are two panels of him looking grim in the rain, and then two panels that are in red and they're flashbacks. And this to me feels very much like these two issues were possibly originally concepted as four issues. Because I feel like I feel like you wouldn't do this flashback because I guess, I, guess, I guess technically the scene where Della stabs Lady J did happen in the previous issue, but I feel like it's it's the last page of the previous issue. And when I got to this panel, these two panels of the flashback, I thought, well, that's the first scene of this very issue. Like, Flynn is having a flashback for his benefit and for my benefit of something that I basically saw happen 23 pages ago. And it reminds me of... Um, the, the current uh, new DC Comics, Mark Wade, Dan Amora, um Batman, Superman, World's Finest series, which is great. And uh, the first issue, there's a flashback in the second half of it to the first half of it, which is weird. And I thought, <laughs> I thought oh, was this originally serialized as like an 11-page chapter online and a different 11-page chapter online? And so it made sense like a week or two later to have a flashback to the previous story. Cause why would you have a, it's like, no, I, I know this happened. I just read it like 10 pages ago.
2: The, the Flint sequence. um, I, I maybe, maybe this will be my highlight from, cause I, I didn't single out a highlight, but I did quite, I did quite like it. He's there looking grim and determined. And, and you, you, as you read the sequence, you're thinking, Oh Flint, Oh Flint. You're going it alone, you're going out for revenge, you're not being part of the team and, you know, you're going to fall flat on your face, you're going to get killed or, you know, you're going to get captured and, you know, it would be much better working as part of the G.I. Joe team. And lo and behold, that is actually what happened. Um, He was, you know, while we were led up the garden path thinking he's going grim and gritty solo revenge mission. Um he is actually just the, the spearhead for the for the wider team. I like the dialogue as he's getting it into the building and talking to the, the sort of the front desk receptionists. Excuse me, I know it's late, but office hours at eight till six. I just need a minute of your time. Office hours at eight till chunk chunk. am I say help you, sir? <laughs> uh, I thought that was a, a cute sequence. Uh, and then there then they on the following page there's something that doesn't quite work very close to working but doesn't quite work which is where flint is um working his way through the building turns around and there's arthur the big uh, the big russian who punches him in the face we've got a, a quite a cool shot of a uh, sort of a close-up of a, of a fist with sort of foreshortened shortened uh, Artur behind it whoomph punching him out and then the last panel of this page is just a solid black panel indicating Uh, that Flint has been KO'd he's you know out for the count the thing that maybe doesn't work quite so well is that this whole sequence has got black gutters so all of the the gaps between the panels up to the borders of the page are colored black so so rather than seeing a black panel that indicates that Flint has been KO'd it just kind of reads a little bit like an absence of art on the page.
0: Yeah, I, I had a similar reaction. So there is this modern tendency in comic books to make comics more alike and treat comics more like the cinema, like movies, like film. And there are many similarities, right? And I will refer to the 180-degree rule, or like not breaking it, not crossing the 180-degree line, uh, I'll talk about jump cuts, right? When I'm referring to comic books, but of course those are those are film terms. You know, film has shots and uh, edits and cuts, whereas comics have panels. But they are they are they are very similar. There's a lot of overlap. But if you did this in a movie scene, it would work because the sound would drop out. You'd have a like a sudden build with like a little bit of drums or like a music swell like half a second long, a second long leading up to this punch and the sound effect. And then you'd cut to black and all the sound would drop out, except for maybe the womph, which is either the actual impact or like Flint hitting the ground. And then you'd maybe keep it black and quiet for two seconds, or maybe you'd immediately cut to the next scene to sort of keep the energy going. But the moment that the screen goes black, in a movie theater, everything goes black. And in a movie, in, in TV and film, you're only looking at one image at a time. But in reading comics, and this is where they're different. Even though you're really only reading one panel at a time, your eyeballs and your brain are taking in all the panels on the page and the other page, which is why designing a page and designing two pages with this in mind, sort of that your reader is going to see it all at once, um, is is part of the is part of the game. And so, I think it would work better if the, the gutters on this page were light gray or white. But I think it would still read as a weird kind of wide rectangular hole. And here's an example of how uh, you could do it differently but get a similar effect. What if the panel, after this sort of POV punch, this fist coming at us, what if it were not uh, short and wide? What if it were sort of the same shape and size as the previous panel where Flint's looking over his shoulder? But what if it's now him uh, lying on the ground, like head and shoulders or torso and head and His eyes are closed or mostly closed and you have a like darkening gradient from the top of the panel coming down like a, like we're putting, uh, like a black curtain, like a black, uh, like mesh sort of over him or the background is like all black and white, but Flint is in color or something like that where you're, you're using, less of the visual language of like film editing and more of the graphical visual language of comics where you can separate the foreground from the background sort of emotionally. And it would be sort of POV emotionally for Flint. This is what he's seeing. This is what he's feeling, but we are seeing him and you cement it that much more like, no, his eyes are closing. He's losing consciousness. And here's another thing, which I think I'm sure Mark, you, you see on this page and you didn't call it out. Another case on this page where this page is trying to do what movies do, where Artur's fist is in focus and Artur behind the fist is very slightly out of focus. And that's probably something that the colorist did. And it may be a decision from the colorist or maybe a note from Tim Seely, the penciler, like in the margins. And that's fun. But that's that's a thing you do in film with like rack focus. Where like you have a shallow depth of field where the amount of the the closest distance from the camera lens and the farthest distance from the camera lens that are all in focus in this case is very small because there's only a few inches that separate this fist from this head. But if you're just drawing comics, you're not thinking so much about things in focus and out of focus optically. you are drawing things that are closer with more tightness or detail and you're drawing things in the background, maybe with less tightness or detail because they're not important or you don't have time, but much less because it's like the camera can or can't get it. And so this is not an overall criticism. Comics, if you want to make your comics more like movies, that's fine. Like one of my favorite comic book stories, which is uh, written and drawn by Bruce Timm. uh, It's a Two-Face story. It's only eight pages long. Uh, it was originally published in Batman Black and White, the the original series, uh, number one. I think it was number one, the the first series. Uh, but it's been reprinted once or twice since then. And every page just has eight rectangular panels that are all the same shape and size. And Bruce Timm is not varying his uh, the sort of rhythm of his panels at all, because he's basically just storyboarding a short animated episode of Batman, even though he's technically drawing comics. So... You can make your comics like, like film, like like animation. That's fine, um, but y- y- it should always work if you're going to do it.
2: <laughs> actually, well, you put talking about some of the the things that we can do in comics as a as a medium put me in mind of actually another panel. It's the same um, panel that we we're talking about before with the reveal of the Umbra logo, where Scarlett is talking on the bottom right hand corner of that page you've got flint leaning against a wall with crossed arms and then on the page t- page turn you've got this exactly the same picture of uh, flint but now as a close-up and i suspect that that it may have just been drawn once and uh statted into possibly the smaller one it would make more sense
1: hmm.
0: i'm doing it back and forth Uh, You might be right.
2: Anyway, just a curious aside, I I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if Tim will pick up on that one.
0: That that is something that happens a lot more in comics uh, with the advent of Photoshop. It was happening in the 70s and 80s and 90s with just regular photocopiers, Xerox machines. Sometimes you could tell because the, you know, if you do it like three panels in a row, the first panel is, is the art and the second and third panels are very, very, very slightly darker. The lines are a little thicker. I generally don't like it. I think you should redraw a panel because I find it graphically distracting, but in sort of the meaning of comics, I have a, I have a, a longer definition for why, but I'll but I'll skip here. In this case, it's okay. Maybe because there's so much else going on in the issue. Yep. <laughs> there's one or two bits of, um, of storytelling here, which were uh, a little unclear for me. So, okay, first a good thing, and then maybe not a good thing. Uh, page 17, Ray and Duke have made it up the uh, ladder and they're they're peeking out of a um, closet or something and they're seeing sort of the same point of view that we saw a few pages earlier where Ray, excuse me, Herring was being escorted in. We saw guards. And now we see uh, all the guards dead on the ground, slumped over at desks. And Wilder is... Telling the sort of masked red shadows uh, to you know exterminate whoever they find, and that's a great bit of storytelling where Santa Lucia is showing us that Ray sees that this has all happened, right? There's a close up on the final panel of the previous page, right where Ray says, "Good Lord, and then he's very, very small and dark, but actually close to the center of this panel, right under Wilder fawn's word balloons. okay, so I like that, so then you go down, and Duke says phones are dead, and then you go down, and Herring has menacingly pulled his pistol, and you think he's going to shoot the two guards that were outside of Delia's cell. One of them sees it about to happen. And then, in a very small panel, her cell door opens, and you hear the sound effect. Blam, blam. Right? I guess it's comics. You don't hear it. You see the sound effect. <laughs> uh, blam, blam. And so then in the next little panel, uh, she's her handcuffs are off and she and Herring are in front of another doorway. And then in the final panel on the page, this is page 17, Ray and Duke are rushing towards them. And Ray says, freeze, Herring, it's over. And then you turn the page and Herring says, Della, and she has her hand up and I don't quite know what she's doing. And so he decides that he'll sacrifice himself. And then Duke slams Herring against the wall. And I got confused the first time I read this. I thought, wait, is she going back into her cell? Her cell has like a keypad on it and a yellow and black diagonal, like construction-y pattern on it. And this, it turns out to be an elevator door, which has a red light over it. Like her door swings on a hinge, the elevator door opens from the center. But I found... I found the storytelling here was was uh, it didn't quite have enough space because I, I sort of needed to see Della and Herring like walk down the hallway away from her cell toward the elevator door. And what I instead get is her standing in a doorway and then standing in a doorway. And so yeah. uh, it's, not, it's not like a mistake and unclear, but it could be clearer. Uh, and so after I turned the page, I thought, wait, if, she, if she's going back to her cell – What's the sacrifice? Like, then he'll just get herring will get, just get thrown in a cell too. And then I thought, oh, okay, it's, there's, a, there's an elevator versus a door. And I guess the elevator hadn't been properly.
2: I think I had almost exactly the same thought process that you had reading these bits. It just, I think it's just a little bit too shortened. For example, uh, the shooting of the guards, blam blam, is on the same panel that she's walking out of the cell and saying, get the keys. You know, it's just too much happening all at once. And then the, I think the, one of the key elements of that causes confusion is that you have kind of got this light purpley grey on the on the elevator door, and the same same colouring being applied to the cell door. Um, right. And and because you, you know you're looking at Della standing front on in front of these doors, there's not it's just not enough to indicate that immediately without kind of going back and rereading and scratching your head a bit to, to so th- make you realise actually they've moved from the cell into the elevator yeah
0: Yeah, so i was about to say a moment ago that the elevator needs to be established and i i caught myself it is established on the previous page the door opens over two panels uh, from closed to open and herring comes out of it with a pistol so yes good the elevator is established what's not established is that there is a hallway that the elevator is on, I guess, one end of it, and Della's cell is, I guess, on the other end of it. And um, the way that uh, Santa Lucia so well establishes this room at the top of this page, page 17, with all the red shadows and all the dead guards, right? You see floor, you see close wall, you see far wall, you see ceiling, you see the space where Ray is hiding, as much as I like this big panel, which very clearly lays out sort of where people are in that scene, I think that panel wanted to be smaller to give more room to the hallway thing. But this is a lot to ask of this page. And this is where this arc starts to remind me of the first four issues of this series of Reinstated, where writer Josh Blaylock is, you know, there. remember there were like seven, eight, nine panels per page on many pages and... You know, scenes last like two pages, and we jump somewhere else. And none of those were double-sized issues. Uh, but in terms of how much ground is covered, uh, a lot of the f- these final two issues as four issues um, sort of reminds me of the first four issues of this series. So jumping mm-hmm. jumping ahead to something uh, that I had a question about, but it's it's sort of less of a storytelling thing. On page twenty-six, this is the page opposite where. Flint is out in the rain and we have that red flashback. On page 26, it's it's across from uh, Flint out in the rain and the two panels of red flashback. Uh, Umbra's corporate headquarters are in New York City. And I guess there are no other tall buildings near this one tall building. I'm not sure any part of New York works like that, but okay. The three head red shadows are giving a speech to these regular red shadows. And the greenhouse has been referred to, or is about to be. And we see it here, and Wilder Vaughn is giving his speech in front of it, and and he says, uh, well, our time is just beginning, and he, he spreads his arms out in front of the, the, the garden, maybe to sort of accentuate the garden behind him. And I thought, is this a part of their plan? Is there some dialogue that's coming, like, oh, the mind control gas is an extract of this rare plant that we're growing here, or uh, we're going to poison everyone from this plant that we're growing here. Or then I thought, okay, well, if they're wiping out the world and starting over, are they going to grow food from here? Okay, well, there's that line where Della can be sort of the mother of the new world. Is this like a Garden of Eden visual analogy? And then I thought, I would like to ask Brandon Jirwaa, I imagine the answer is either ran out of space, ran out of time, or uh, it's 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 something that Jirwa or Tim Seeley put in so that it's not one more like tech headquarters with, mm. you know, computer screens and a desk and like buttons behind it. So I like it because it's different, but it starts to ask a question for which in this comic book, there is not an answer. Mm. And it's not like uh, you know, uh, Chekhov's gone. It's not like Flint rushes in and he's like, oh good, I can set fire to all these plants and like force everyone out of the the, the greenhouse. It's like, nope, there's just some plants.
2: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I kind of almost was reading between the lines on that one thinking, yeah, it must be part of their, their plan. They're talking about, you know, sort of their, you know, almost a rebirth of the world. You know, Della's the new, after they've wiped out the world there there is the new mother and maybe i guess having a greenhouse full of plants might be good for that but yeah it's not it's not kind of quite there is it it's it's like something's unsaid
0: and so in in terms of um this this greenhouse that the plants which like start to ask a question for which there is no answer and that sky coloring mistake where it's like it's important that colors get right so i don't I don't conflate things. So here's here's an example of these two things coming together. So uh, turn the page. And all right, so that was that was 26. So now we're on 27, 28. Okay, so uh, page 28, Washington, D.C. Uh, the Joes are getting out of the helicopter and there is a photograph of a sky uh, as the sky, which I don't like. I think colorists in comics should, even if they're looking at a photo, I think they should paint those clouds um, but okay.
2: And an an unusual technique actually for Devil's Jew. We've not seen a lot of that.
0: Correct. Uh, correct. And, and, uh, and if, if, if you want to get into it, I can explain why, but I, it, I find the short version is I find it distracting because it doesn't agree with the art. But on the next panel, there's some kid standing behind Hawk in a wheelchair and he's got spiky red hair. And I thought, who's this? And then some, and then Ray calls him Kamakura. And I thought, interesting, have we seen Kamakura? And the answer is, I'm sure we have. I just sort of, when I think of him, I always think of him with his full costume on. I thought, oh, I don't, I didn't know he had red hair or, oh, I didn't quite remember he had red hair. And then amazingly in New York City at the front desk of the Umbra corporate headquarters on the next page, when Flint comes in from the rain, Kamakura is the night watchman at the front desk and at in the in the lobby of the of the umbra head corporate headquarters oh wait no that that's because tim seeley drew a similarly young person with the same hairstyle and uh colorist brett r smith uh it's not exactly the same color there's more um There's more, like, blue-purple in Kamakura's hair, and there's more brown-yellow in the receptionist's hair. But they look like the same person. And I guess technically the receptionist has some freckles, so let's call him Archie. So Archie Andrews grows up and gets a job uh, in New York. Good for him. And this is a very small thing, and I'm, like, sort of making fun of it. But it reminds me of that comment I made um, several episodes ago where there's, like, one random cobra interior and there is a like slim Cobra uh, office worker with long black hair and like round glasses it's like is that the Baroness? Like I'm sorry you probably can't have any random Caucasian women in Cobra who are just like walking around with long black hair and round glasses because I'm gonna think it's the Baroness so you know give this guy a goatee (laughs)
2: Oh dear. He tried. He's got stubble, but he just didn't have long enough to prepare for the role. I have, I have
0: one, I have one more sort of major art thing that I want to say, and then, and then we can do some wrap up. I have been hard on Tim Seeley's art since he's first started drawing for this book. And one of my refrains is that he draws a lot of straight on shots. He draws a lot of one point perspective. So if the wall in front of you, if you're looking at it straight on, like if you're in like the middle of a hallway looking straight down, or if you're anywhere in a room, but you're looking, if, if the walls on your left and right, if you're parallel to those and the wall in front of you, you're perpendicular to it, that's one point perspective. And Seely does a lot of that. And I think it's because he's not comfortable drawing a lot of two point and three point perspective. Two point would be if you're in that room or that hallway and you rotate your head the slightest bit or a lot to the left or right one degree, 10 degrees, uh, 89 degrees, right? If you rotate your head 90 degrees, you are back in one point perspective, now looking at a different wall. And then three point perspective would be if you tip your head up or down a little bit from that rotating your head. Okay, so here's a good comparison in the same comic book, right? So page 19, the panel with the miscolored yellow sky, when we are looking into the big panel in the middle, where Scarlet is standing and the Joes are around her, right? Notice how we the camera is higher than all the Joes. And we know that because we can see the tops of their heads. We can see their shoulders. Uh, so we're looking down at them. So this is three-point perspective. It's not, it's not amazing. It's its, it's pretty good. Um, and then turn the page. And on page 20, the next page, panel five, right? The final panel, the panel of the page, the Joes uh, realize that Flint is gone. And Ray's saying, Flint, notice how you can see the ceiling. And then on the next page, Santa Lucia does it one more time with the first panel where the uh, the limo, the, the driver is opening the limo door and we're looking up at the buildings, right? This is three-point perspective. There are three vanishing points, one on the left, one on the right, one way up off the page. like uh, It's like six inches off the page, right? And Santa Lucia does this a lot. Right. If you if you look down at a checkerboard floor, or you look up at a hallway or like ceiling, and there's like a grid on it, and it's not perfect squares, it's like diamonds or parallelograms. That's three-point perspective. Okay. So Santa Lucia is doing it all over in his half the book. Uh, now turn. We were on twenty-one with the buildings. Turn ahead to page twenty-three. So it's Seely's uh, first page, where it says Chapter Four: The Pentagon right? So what's the second panel? One point perspective. We're in the middle of the hallway, we're looking straight down at Herring. What's the second panel? One point perspective. We are looking perpendicular at the wall. What's the third? Uh, what's the next panel? One point perspective, right? We are looking straight at some Joes past Herring. And then in the final panel, what's the perspective? Well, there is none because there's no background, but it's, it's one point perspective, right? And then what happens when you turn the page past the ad? first panel on page 24, this is not three-point perspective, even though we're looking down. This is isometric perspective because all the verticals, the the up-down of the doorway, the up-down of the table leg, those are straight lines and they're all parallel to each other. Isometric perspective doesn't really exist. That's what architects use. That's what like video games, old video games use, like, like Zaxxon or Paperboy or new retro video games. And so here at last, rather than, Comparing a panel to some panel in in another comic book or some other illustration, I can compare a panel in this issue to another panel in this very issue. And then, you know, Sealy draws handsomely throughout the whole issue and his storytelling is good. But do you find something, I'm asking Mark sort of for an answer or sort of uh, rhetorically, do you find something sort of plain about this splash page? on the next page where Ray and Duke are getting thrown by the explosion. There's something like not dynamic about it. There's something sort of too like straight and up and down and flat. And that's because there is no perspective in it, which is to say it's like one point perspective. For for something as dynamic as a like a splash page of two guys getting hurled by a big explosion. So I'm really glad Santa Lucia draws half of these final two issues cuz this stuff is really good his storytelling is good his drawing of tech and and his uh perspective and as a comparison shows where Sealy still as of 2005 um has has some has some learning to do
2: Hmm. should we talk about the grand finale to the issue now yeah so the joe team come at this uh tower from above flint's there already and he i think has a uh, some sort of Uh, tracking device on on his chest which lets them know exactly where he is and they come in and in fairly short order they smash through the top of the greenhouse they find out what the red shadow's weakness was which is that if you hit them and shoot them then they get overloaded (laughs) um (laughs) you found my weakness uh, and then they sort of seem to to win in fairly short order, just in time for a, a wrap up of uh, the issue in the series. Uh,
0: so my my two major thoughts on this are, while I don't think you should kill characters in you know franchises in comic books, you know it's like don't kill Batman because someone's going to want to write Batman next month and in five years and in ten years, and like don't don't kill Barbara Gordon or Alfred or like Tim Drake's friend either for that matter. I did expect some red shadows to die at the end of this story. And I was surprised, and I think a little let down, when they weren't. Because unlike a Destro or a Cobra Commander or Major Blood, who get the Tim Don't Kill label, the red shadows, to me, are disposable. I I did think that they were invented so that they could be offed. Or at least one of them. And also they represent for me a couple of things that I don't love about this run. And so I want to see them gone. But Jurwa, quite fairly, maybe decided, no, one day I may be able to write these characters again. You know, Mm. Devil's Doom may have the license for a long time. The Joe Casey relaunch may not, you know, work out. And if not me getting back the main book in a year or five, maybe I'll get to do a miniseries or a special. And so if he liked these characters and he saw a future in them, Um, I can also imagine maybe Hasbro said don't kill these characters because even though from our interview with Blaylock, it sounds like halfway through and later at in the devil's do Hasbro relationship, Hasbro was a little less um, involved, maybe in terms of, you know, no, this is still a toy and we're selling toys to kids, you know, like don't make it too violent Maybe someone at Hasbro, you know, as much pay attention as they were paying to this book, maybe they thought, well, we can make some Red Shadows toys, maybe, maybe. So that's my first sort of thought on the on the finale. I'll, I'll hold my second one for a minute. What do you think about them being dispatched in fairly short order and not being fully dispatched?
2: I, I, think, I think you're probably on the nose in terms of the motivation behind it. I think, as you explain it, I think that uh, Brandon's motivation that that maybe these are characters he's established and can come back to at some point in the in the future. That sort of rings like a, a solid solid reason for for not killing any of the these you know three main antagonists that have been introduced. You know, leaving them back in the toy box for, for to to return to at some point in the future. You know, after after kind of the slow reveal of those you know the the, the mystery of the Joes being killed and sort of building them up as these grand menace. It, it did seem like they were defeated very quickly by a very small force, but I can see that they only had so many so many pages and you know, in terms of the way that it was handled, it it wasn't it wasn't like it was incredibly uh, it didn't feel like too jarring, like, no way the Joes could never dip pull that off. But yeah, it did seem like quite quick order. But there we go. The the issue had and the arc had to finish at some point.
0: Um, since i was talking about film versus comics uh hey in this final scene f- the fifth from the final page breaks the 180 degree rule where flint is on the left looking at della she's on the right you've lost della and his gun is in her face and then with uh-huh. the red background in the middle she's now on the left and flint is on the right and the scene is so straightforward right it's not important there's not a third character it's not there's not a doorway they're like are they in the door out of the door in the room out of the out of the room you can follow it but it it is a it's a little jarring it's like wait no did they just flip no oh i see we flipped we the reader the camera flipped
2: if hammer was writing this as well he'd probably come back with a a note back to Seeley, you know on what what is that gun that you've drawn that doesn't look like a recognizable gun
0: I really thought at the very least that one of the Red Shadows would die. Like, it's going to be Arter, right? Like, he's the he's the sort of the tough, mean one, you know? Like, Della is, um, her costume is more interesting. Her look is more interesting. We don't have a lot of women characters in G.I. Joe. She's gotten, I think, more dialogue. She got to do the thing. She got to kill <laughs> uh, Lady J, you know? It's like, oh, kill kill the, the big guy, right? But no, no, he gets away. Um, A bit
2: like the... Uh, what were the baddies from Superman? Superman 2? The Kryptonians? Zod.
0: Zod. From- and something and... Uh, shoot, it's three letters with an N. Oh, I'm sorry, God. Superman fans. Non? It's okay. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, what, what clearly what Brandon Jerwa is setting up here is that Wilder, Arthur, and Della are going to get banished to the Phantom Zone. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Okay, so my other comparison here is... In this in the final uh five, ten pages of the book, the villains are in a building in New York and the Joes attack it. And we have seen this before in G.I. Joe comics, in parts two and three of the Snake Eyes trilogy, right? When Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow and Stalker take go into the Cobra Consulate building in issues ninety five mm-hmm. and ninety-six. And those issue ninety-five, I think, is my favorite comic book period. Wow. Right. If I had to pick one and I don't want to pick one but and you know it's also like the 10th comic book I ever read so it's it's there's a lot of nostalgia there but the the sense of of sneaking into a building and you know in this scene in the Devil's Do scene it's raining and it doesn't really add anything to the scene you know this isn't like you know John Romita Jr. the last 20 years has drawn a couple really great covers or pinups of The Amazing Spider-Man on a ledge outside at night in the rain. And then he did one of Batman recently. Like, that is so much about mood and, you know, the texture. Wet, dark, and rain and slippery. Okay, so what happens in issue uh, 95, 96? I haven't read them in a long time, but there's a scene in like a sub-basement with a night viper, you know, and stalker, and he's going up some stairs And you really get the sense of the building and they make their way higher and higher and then I forget what it is, but something explodes and a little bit of the building is like, like there's a section of floor that's leaning or crashing out the window. It feels very much like, you know, the end of an action movie, you know, or like, is it Transformers 2 or 3 where they're in a building that's like leaning back and forth? Anyway, and they're sliding and Michael Bay is like screaming at me in the audience. Um, (laughs) So you know the the joe's like invading in this scene like even the scene where they crash through the the sort of glass dome of the of the um greenhouse it's pretty easy you know like there's a sound effect Wakum, and then there's a panel where they're just i don't know swinging down repelling down parachuting down i can't quite tell uh, on the on the bottom panel where like scarlet's head is cropped and snake eyes is uh, firing and
2: both snake eyes and Duke are sort of holding on to something yeah so I think it's like they they sort of and on the previous page sort of dangling down from the ceiling there's these kind of grips so I think they must have this sort of like yeah like repelling right. thing okay where they like, a, on like to a a, grip a zip and...
0: line a zip hmm. line thing that goes straight down um something like that and You know, if comparing these 10 pages to two whole issues of G.I. Joe, and I think some of the best issues of G.I. Joe, if that's not fair, just uh, three months later, it sort of happens again in the Marvel G.I. Joe where uh, issue, is it 97 or 98? 97. Uh, 98. That's the Lee Weeks fill-in Uh, where the cover is um, stalker and uh, storm shadow. And there's like an ink stamp over it, like wanted fugitives. And this is the issue where uh, I'm getting, I'm getting two issues mixed up. Uh, The Lee weeks issue is where the night creepers talk to Cobra commander on the top floor of the Cobra consulate building, which has taken some damage and there's like missing windows. Right. And it's at night and there's all this mood in that scene. And Lee weeks was right out of school then. So maybe this is a fair comparison. You know, he's, doesn't it doesn't have a lot of professional credits to his name he'd drawn like two issues of of daredevil by that point and then an issue or two later it's mark bright and that's when snake eyes uh or is it 108 i forget
2: when snake 107 is the fugitives written uh drawn by lee weeks and then the following issue is 108 with snake Snake eyes Eyes putting
0: snake eyes putting one of his knives one of his two cobra commander's neck right yeah You know, Sealy has a real thankless task here to pull off an action scene in not enough pages. And there are a lot of characters in this scene. This is a remarkably small squad of Joes. It's just uh, four plus Flint, but there are also three red shadows and then a bunch of red shadows. So there's a lot to juggle in this scene, right? Hmm. Um, But you don't really get any sense of sort of where this happens. You know, that there's an upper level where the speech was made and a lower level where the generic red shadows were that there's like broken glass around, you know, or that now that it's raining and there's a giant hole in the glass, some of the rain would be coming in. And that that may or may not affect the story. I'm not looking for like someone to get wet because they're standing over there or someone to slip because there's water on the floor. I don't mean that, but like, you know, if. I mean, separate from you, like, recording a podcast, Mark, right now, if we were just watching you in the space where you are, you'd be behaving differently if the window was open and it was really windy. You know, you'd be talking differently and you'd be sort of leaning and your hair, your hat would be. um, So, and then for Wilder Vaughn to get away in this little uh, sort of half uh, firebat, half escape pod feels really truncated and not silly but not cool it's like oh okay well i guess if he has to live he's got to get away but he's been so uh machiavellian and vicious in the last couple of issues and there isn't a big showdown with with anyone there's a very short showdown with snake eyes and then like oh i guess there was a fire bat on the roof that i didn't notice and then in in two panels we it, it is established and then it's used and and he gets away. So I I still think this issue is more fun and better than the previous issue, but I'm I'm quite aware of how uh in sort of some different ways. Like the previous issue was trying to cram in a lot of dialogue and a lot of explanation, and this issue is still doing that. This issue is also trying to cram in a lot of action so that it can be a satisfying resolution.
2: Okay, so I think that was much the end of it the the last page there is uh, flint the joe team has been disbanded once more packing up his house and looking at a photo of uh, himself and lady J. the ice spy there it's... being that it's in an animated style
0: yeah but Bo- both in both in drawing it looks like the cartoon and in color although his shirt's the wrong color oh no Shorts Brown, I guess. I guess it's. I guess it's uh, Tiger Force Flint, who we who we never saw in animation. I don't think he's even in the ad for the toys.
2: Oh, yeah. I hadn't even. <laughs> I had clocked that one. Yeah. So, and that's that's it. That's the that's the end of the issue. The end of the Brandon Jawa run on GI Joe. Any more thoughts, or should we give this one a score?
0: Um. Well, there's 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 a couple sort of formatting things just to uh, mention in in the issue. Um, in the centerfold, uh, which is, that—that that is a technical term in publishing, right? I know that has a particular connotation uh, with Playboy, <laughs> right? That's a second meaning. The centerfold is the center fold of a magazine or comic. Uh, in the centerfold of this issue of G.I. Joe, they're not staples, but I'll call them staples. Where the staples are, there's a two-page ad for the relaunch for issue zero and for issue one, and in big block fonts it says get both issues and join the fight right and it issue zero is only 25 cents it's a it's a full-length comic it's 22 pages right issue one and it's this is hyping the new uh, writer and art team and then i think i mentioned this in the last um in the last issue but the final page of this comic book is an in-house ad for subscriptions that you can subscribe to uh, a Dungeons and Dragons miniseries. And also you can subscribe to the first six issues of G.I. Joe America's Elite, right? Get the the new series uh, delivered monthly to your door. You only have to order once. Get issue zero for free when you order, which is funny because issue zero is only 25 cents. So it's not not the best deal. But hey, uh, one out of every 50 subscriptions will receive signed copies. Uh and then the uh inside back cover is an ad for uh that year's uh GI Joe convention, and it mentions the new GI Joe number no. one, which is gonna have some kind of convention exclusive cover. And writer Joe Casey is tentatively scheduled to appear. And then this is fun. Do you you have the back cover, right, in your bound edition, Mark?
2: Uh who is the biggest G.I. Joe fan?
0: Yeah. So this is a photo. That's Brandon Gerwa, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is a photo. Uh, it's, it's been made not black and white, but sort of red and white. And it must be have been taken at a convention. It's Brandon Gerwa. He must be seated. And he's talking to and surrounded by four cosplayers. Looks like Lady J. Ricondo, Scarlet and Law. And there's a contest and there's a photo of some other person on the bottom. I can't tell who it is. And, uh, and it, it it encourages people to email proof that they're the biggest uh, G.I. Joe fan, right? The sky's the limit. What are you going to do? How are you going to prove it? Figure it out. And uh, they uh, Devils Do will announce the winner on their website. And the winner will get their name printed in an upcoming comic. And then there's some there's a disclaimer uh, in small type on the bottom that says only individuals can enter, no groups uh, or clubs. And I think this is really fun. I also wish it involved some free comics, uh, not just your name. Oh, you? Uh, oh no, it does. Lifetime it does. subscription. Okay, right. Sorry, sorry. Uh, right. I, I skipped. I skipped the second largest font. Uh, prove to DDP that you are the biggest GI Joe comic fan and win a lifetime subscription. The only person to have one. And it is a little sad to know that whoever won this would only get it for another two years. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't say that snidely. I that's a bummer because, you know, I I know a guy who uh, did a mural at a restaurant, and part of his payment was uh, he eats there for free, forever. Right. And it's been, it's been a couple of years, so he he saves some money, and the restaurant's in a good location and does good business. So I think this will keep paying uh, uh, dividends for a long time to come. This um, zombie burger. No, no, no! This is a little, uh, this is a little like ramen place in uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Zombie Burger, folks, is a reference to uh, uh, a a restaurant in Des Moines, Iowa, which has some Ron Wagner uh, murals on the walls. All right, so that's now that I've now that I've pointed out the uh, the advertising stuff, I give this a five.
2: Yep, yeah, I think I'm probably there. I tend to score a little bit higher than you, so I'll give it five 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 and a half six five and a half i think yeah i think it's i think it's pretty well written it's very clear the the art is generally good and i think tim seeley's uh art uh is quite handsome i'd describe it as and i think that we've not really touched on it but i think it has improved since uh since he started on the book he's you know got a lot more experience under his belt and and generally, it does look good and uh, generally satisfying, if not uh, necessarily technically particularly dynamic from a perspective, a perspective perspective. Yeah, I'll, I'll also note as well that I think um, that that Brandon Joe's writing has generally got a very good ear for dialogue. Often, when I'm looking at specific speech balloons and, and reading the dialogue, I do uh, I do sort of think to myself that uh, you know it's got. A, a nice flair to 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 the way that the dialogue is written. So so while uh, my scoring here is not astronomical, it's working within the confines of maybe maybe sort of the the overall story uh, sort of not necessarily massively appealing to me, uh, rather than uh, entirely the the execution of it.
0: Uh, my my final two thoughts: one, we we didn't talk about General Ray. And he is certainly a uh, sort of his arc or the reveal of his backstory is certainly a no pun intended casualty of this final truncation. And I was thinking about this as I read the comic and I thought, I don't like Ray. I dislike him less, but I really don't want him taking up so much space. And I think Jirwa had a committed to him and B likes him. But if if I think if I were doing this, I would have found a way to take Ray out of the story an issue or two ago. So that a Joe who I know more, maybe it's Colton, whether or not he like magically can walk again. You know, Bruce Wayne did it, right? Bruce Wayne did it after just a year. <laughs> uh what was that? Nights Oh no, that was Night Quest The Search? Yeah. Because you know the final scene, I, I would be more invested if it wasn't like Ray and Four Joes that I love, but you know like Bazooka and Four Joes that I love, or like Storm Shadow and Four Joes that I love, or like Hawk, whatever it is. And also, and I will say this again in our next disavowed episode, but it worked. The plan worked. I had stopped reading this book after this issue. I came back. And not only did I buy issue zero and issue one, I was really excited. Really liked Joe Casey because of other stuff he was writing. Really liked Stefano Caselli's art. And I thought, like, we won't jettison everything that's come before, but we're not necessarily going to talk about it. And this will be a smaller squad or more focused, whatever it was. The stakes are bigger, right? Whatever the promises were. Uh, I was very excited. And also, I love stunts when publishers make a full-size comic very cheap uh batman the 10 cent adventure superman the 12 cent adventure the nine cent issue of fantastic four uh and then devil's do does it again later on in this run all of which are facts that i will surely repeat in our next <laughs> this About episode but this is not meant to sound snide uh but i was really glad when this was over because like okay now 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 we can get back to it
2: in our last chat i got slightly confused about the joe casey x-men run which i was googling uh, after the event and i sort of slightly conflated joe casey with uh joe kelly and mike carey so <laughs> mike carey did x-men supernovas which was what the the run that i was thinking of which was later than than 2005 uh and joe kelly uh i think did a long run on Deadpool, so one uh, similar-sounding Joe and another guy, an X-Men writer with a similar-sounding surname.
0: Don't, aren't, aren't Joe Casey and Joe Kelly both in Man of Action?
2: Oh, quite good. Yeah, could be, could be.
0: It's them and Duncan Rouleau, and I forget who the fourth person is. I think they're, I think they're together in a group. Mm. Um, in terms of the timeline, there is a caption on the final panel of this final page of this final issue. After it says the end, it says, The saga of G.I. Joe begins anew, in G.I. Joe number zero, on sale in two weeks. Uh So that's really cool for momentum. And uh, it sort of brings to mind, at the moment we're recording this, we don't yet know how many months might pass after IDW's G.I. Joe 300 before some other publisher's first issue. And it'd be great if it's only one month, although more months might sort of wet people's appetite or Give the new publisher time to you know get the word out, but going back to 2005, that's great,
2: just two weeks good. And it comes on the hot on the heels of two double issues that are, were both cover dated, I think May 2005, so they, they came out in very quick succession. Whether that that's
0: was... right, that's that's right. Did we forget to say this? Forget to say this that these final two issues it was it, it ran bi weekly, it really I was. Right. It really was four issues worth in in one month.
2: Wow. Yeah, so so all very hot on the heels. Obviously, they, they wanted to get going, get this thing happening, new era, a lot of G.I. Joe comics out in uh, <laughs> May 2005. And, you know, if you feel like you've spent a bunch of money on G.I.
0: Joe comics, the next one is only 25 cents.
2: Bargain. So, yes, I think we are done talking... Devil's Due, issue 43. Next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will continue looking at the disavowed era. And Tim, I suggest before we move uh, on to the Joe Casey stuff, we round out the Brandon Joe era by looking at Master and Apprentice from May 2004.
0: Oh, yes. Okay, I don't remember the date of Master and Apprentice two. Will we also do that as an episode before yeah. let's let's okay. do
2: let's do Master and Apprentice One. Uh the I think four issues of that all in one go. Uh then we'll follow that up with Master and Apprentice Two. And while we're in Brandon Joa land, let's let's uh cover Snake Eyes Declassified and then and then let's crash on into uh
0: what about uh GI Joe Transformers Volume two?
2: Oof now you're talking What'd you say? Oh, man,
0: people people aren't going to... Well, I forget who wrote it, but I think chronologically we should.
2: We talked to him. It was... Oh, nice. Dan Jolly? Yes, Dan Jolly.
0: Okay, great. Uh, they're, they're in a box just 10 feet from where I'm sitting, but the door is closed. So it's not <laughs> right. like I can't. Okay. Also, there's a computer in front of me. It's not like I can't know at the moment. All right. So for those of you who were really excited to hear me in just uh, one more episode repeat the same five <laughs> bullet points about how excited I was that the Jerwa book was ending and the Joe Casey book was beginning. I guess I'll do that in four episodes time, five episodes time.
2: So Master Apprentice, followed by Master Apprentice 2, followed by Snake Eyes Declassified, followed by Transformers Volume 2, then we're into issue zero. And, uh, and all, yeah, all caught up with all of these other books that have been running in parallel, apart from Reloaded. Oh, no, Reloaded. (laughs) We'll do Reloaded another time.
0: Oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe this, isn't there a natural break, like one year into America's Elite? Maybe we swoop back around to do Reloaded then.
2: Yeah, when we need to reload, uh, we'll, we'll swoop back to that.
0: Yes, anyway. It's alright. That's that's a good pun. Good job.
2: <laughs> it wasn't that good. Okay, uh so so that's that's disavowed. We also cover all of the issues of A Real American Hero from Larry Hammer as they come out from the old and new publishers. Um and uh yeah, just other general interesting stuff as and when it happens. Tim, where can people find you? Uh
0: video essays about television and film at Atomic Abe Productions. That's our website and our YouTube channel. My brick and mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts is Hub Comics, and the blog where I write about GI Joe is a real American
2: Great stuff. You can find out all about Talking Joe on the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to those places. We have facebook group we're on twitter for the moment as at time of recording it's twitter still exists we're on instagram and uh you can also leave us things like voice memos we're also on patreon patreon patreon.com talking joe so a big thanks to all of our backers richard sam jay bill christopher justin rob and brian who are getting access to episodes extra early as well as the odd bit of exclusive content here and there. Speaking of our voicemail facility, we've got a message in from Scotty Cameron. Let's see what he has to say.
1: Yo, Talking Joe. Hello, Mark, Tim. I wanted to respond to the prompt in last episode of Disavout, ARA41, about the question if the listener had started reading America's Elite, as their first DDP G.I. Joe run, or if they had started A.R.A., quit, or had read to the end and then picked up America's Elite. And for me, it was the first G.I. Joe comic I ever read. I enjoyed some of the cartoons, and at the time, I liked Rise of Cobra. Anything with explosions was good in my mind at that time. And so I had read America's Elite along with the current IDW stuff at the t- in the run up to Retaliation. I wanted to finish by asking about The Black Major his comic by an entry has Wilder Vaughn listed as an alias and in some of the paragraphs in his entry there are sentences that refer to him as Wilder Vaughn. I was wondering, could Wilder Vaughn and the DDB comics be the DDP interpretation of the black major? I was just curious. Yo,
2: Joe. Thanks for the voicemail, Scotty. Now, your specific question, I think, got a little bit of discussion on the facebook forums everybody go over to facebook forums if you're not already a member and yeah i think you know uh, comic vine is a wiki page which means that people can put in stuff there and that maybe the quality of that information is dependent on the person putting it in so I don't know exactly where they would have got the Wilder Vaughn Black Major connection I'm not too sure if there has been any comic appearances where they have made that connection or it's just the uh, wishful thinking of the author that put it on the comic book comic vine page but but certainly back in the Battle Action Force days he was known as John Shepard and From the issues that we've gone through so far, there isn't really much there that connects Wilderthorn to the Black Major. Certainly his appearance, he looked much more like Baron Ironblood. So, um, yeah, I I think this one is probably a bit of a Red Herring. He's not Mars Herring either. Um, Okay, anyway, (laughs) thanks for the message. So that is us done. But remember that... Nobody Beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! Laters.
0: I remember Della Eden's name this time, through the whole episode.